the new Sabbath project here on CIUT Radio. A little while back, Ken Stower, the man who makes CIUT hum, and who I've always been a fan of, got in touch with me and asked me if I'd like to have a little corner of his radio station to putter around in. Now, I love radio. But my work these days as executive advisor to the president of Sheridan College has frankly captured my imagination and it's really energized me. So I wasn't sure if there was that much more room left in my head for talking to folks on the radio. I let it rumble around inside me for a while and uh, along with my partner Courtney Pasternak we decided that there were some things worth airing as it were. You see, we do something called the New Sabbath Project. It's our way of building community one meal at a time. We do it on Fridays, and we invite all kinds of people to join us. Some are old friends, some we barely know. Dinner is a feast, and our guests are expected to bring some food and drink along with them. We gather round the wine, the cheese, dip our bread into homemade hummus, and slowly draw the curtain on our workaday lives and enter the architecture in time that is the seventh day. Some who come are secular, some are not. It doesn't matter. When we sit to eat, we light the candles, as is the tradition I come from, and we say blessings over them. Then we ask everyone to say a blessing over anything they'd like. I'm always amazed at how heartfelt and moving the simplest of blessings can be once they're said out loud. Some mention God, most don't. I've always thought I should do a show called God or Whatever. Anyway, after the blessings, we raise our glasses, bless the wine, toast each other, and break bread, literally. You see, the Moroccan tradition that I grew up in means that you take a piece of the challah, the Sabbath egg loaf, and you tear a piece off, dip it into some salt lightly, and remind yourself of the bitterness and proximity of all that can enslave us. And then, I as the host, throw the bread across the table from the oldest participant down to the youngest. In a family, that works great. In mixed company with people you don't know that well, sometimes it's a little awkward. I've gotten pretty accurate over the years, though, and pretty well nailed the plate, but occasionally I do throw it right into somebody's glass, and I'm sorry for that in advance. After that, we eat, we drink, we talk, and the amazing thing is that after we've done our blessings, there's an intimacy that seems to bring out the best in us, the passion, the sincerity, the big talk, and the soft hearts. For six days, we do... And for one day, we're allowed to just be with each other. This is what the seventh day brings, if you let it. Today, we'll talk about the Sabbath as a day of reflection, an act of courage, of political and environmental resistance, perhaps. Next week, who knows, maybe you'll try tossing some bread around yourself. For our inaugural show in the New Sabbath Project, I've got three guests coming up during this hour. Tanya Shevitz from Reboot, the organizers of Sabbath Manifesto and the National Day of Unplugging. My friend Dr. Wayne Roberts on food and its place in the sacred. But first, Toronto Rabbi Aaron Flansre, who will uh, give us a little context. And I always, uh, look, I just enjoy talking to you, so we might as well just do that. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm I'm good. Thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. you and I have had conversations about what, what a seventh day means, and uh, you've made me think of a lot of things, so I wanted to talk a bit about that. What's, give me your experience of the value 
of stopping, the value of a Sabbath, of a seventh day? I think the value is found in a number of areas, but if I could just point us all in one particular direction, and that is in the, uh, in the Bible, the story of the Sabbath actually has two motifs to it. Uh, one found in the book of Exodus is what we call generally the creation motif, meaning the argument given to support the idea of a Sabbath is because, uh, listen, it says that God worked for six, six days, he rested on the seventh day, or she or it rested on the seventh day, and uh, we should do the same. And a part of this is this emulation of the divine. That's called the creation motif. The second story is in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, where it says, you know, actually the reason why you should uh, cease from work or creative activity, those are two different words, by the way, uh, that you should cease from creative activity is because you were a slave. And now you're no longer a slave. And so it is the right place of a free person to enjoy this septimanal punctuation, this once in every seven days, this sense of ceasing, the argument being that the art of recreation is recreation. That as we imitate God, that, that beginning on the first day, we once again immerse ourselves in this act of creating in order to properly re-engage the art of creation. We need recreation to recreate. Okay, so the kind of energy you have to put into uh, the doing of life needs the one day of the being. Or, <laughs> uh, I'll argue against myself, because I'm a <laughs> rabbi, and the, uh, you know, the old joke about Jews who, you know, who uh, negotiate against themselves, well, I'll ask for this much, or no, maybe I'll ask for this much. So the other argument is, of course, is uh, beautifully framed by Hannah Arendt, and that is our position in life is not merely to be a homo faber, meaning a person only of that which makes. That there is an inherent value in just being. And so this notion of the Sabbath, which I had mentioned to you, interesting, in one of our conversations, the word Sabbath is one of the most unique words in human language because there is no translation for it. Almost every language uses the word Sabbath but they don't translate the word. So, for example, in Hebrew, it's Shabbat. In English, it's Sabbath. It's Sabato, Sabbatico. There's all this, there's this constant, near-universal recognition of what the Sabbath is. And so the argument, of course, I think, subtly being that there is a value to humans as beings and not simply humans who are doing. And the Sabbath also frames that beautifully. So with most things that are supposed to be good for you, they're very hard to do. Why is it so hard to do this for people? I think it depends on what doing is. So to view the Sabbath or understand that question properly, at least the way that I understand how you're asking it, is to understand um, how the Sabbath has evolved over time in tandem with society. When the world was a very different place, sans electricity and moving vehicles and factories. The idea of the Sabbath probably was something that was very cherished by people because it was a day of sanctity. Uh, today, um, we are entirely tethered to the world. There is no sense that there's a wall between me and this. I, I carry on my left uh, hip a constant reminder of the presence and the connection that things can pull me at any time. So what does it mean today 
200 years ago, it meant that I didn't plow my fields. Today, it means turning off my devices and separating myself from what appears, at least, to be the much larger world around me. So one of the highlights of my week is just before I head out to my synagogue on Friday afternoon, and I take my iPhone off of my belt, and I turn it off, and I can feel the smile <laughs> cover my face. It is, and then I, I walk downstairs, and I kiss my beautiful wife, and I hug my children, and I head off to my services, and I walk home, and, and I'm probably no different from many people in that I, on a regular basis, endanger my life by texting and reading emails as I walk. Not while I drive, but <laughs> while I walk. And, um, and the Sabbath is this remarkable oasis where I, I, I don't do those things. But I think in the minds of a lot of people, they would feel more lost than gain. You and I have had conversations about the new Sabbath project that we do in mm -hmm. our home and why it can't be replicated, it would seem. Maybe just people love it, can't wait to get invited back and then go off into their lives. But we talked about obligation. Tell me the place of obligation in the Sabbath notion. Well, Echad Am, who is a uh, 19th century Zionist writer who was not religious in the classic sense, he he said that the Jews have not kept the Sabbath quite nearly as much as the Sabbath has kept the Jews. Um, the Sabbath is the only ritual commandment in the Ten Commandments. And maybe it is for that reason, as a total tangent, because I, I love tangential thinking, that the Sabbath was the line drawn by the Council of Nicaea in 325 at the early formation of the Roman Catholic Church, moving it from Saturday to Sunday. Right. And so the Sabbath um, has an air of demand to it. It's this notion of what's called in Latin imitatio diei, this notion of imitating God. And so in the minds of a committed religious person, an observant person, come Friday afternoon, there's no choice. In other words, do I feel like having a dinner, inviting my friends over and having kind of a sentimental unplugging, or do I want to go see the new James Bond movie? Mm -hmm. There is no choice because left to choice, humans often will vary depending upon their passion for the thing. And we don't like, as individuals, in an individualistic society, it's hard to get these collective notions breathing and living. I'm sure you deal with this as a, a congregant rabbi all the time, is how do you get the collective to do something together? Because no one's telling me what to do. If I want to go drive around on Saturday and pick up things that you know, sleep country or whatever I want to do that. I need to. I don't have enough time. You know, you're, 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 you don't understand my life. You're, you're not with me. So right. there, that seems to be one of those sort of obstacles that, that is created is that individualism and obligation don't necessarily go very well together. They don't. It requires a subtle connection between the two, and that is recognizing that my growth as, as an individual will only come through a binding sense of some obligations that I have. So if I'm not a religious person, how do I build that architecture and, and, and inhabit it without the overarching obligation to something bigger than me? How, how can I do it? Well, if you're asking me how you do this minus or sans uh, a religious passion or sense of obligation, I'm a man of religion and I really don't know how one would do that. 
On the other hand, though, I do know that there are people who are generally not very observant people, but people who do attend synagogue and get very strong religious feelings. And for themselves, be it once a week or maybe once a month or a few times a month, and they don't come a time and they come late and they kind of strike it just in time to hear the rabbi's sermon and hear the cantor do a few nice pieces. But for them, not coming would be a tremendous loss uh, to their flow of the week. Mm -hmm. And so I think in some respects it's creating, and I'm not a fan of this word, but I'm gonna use it anyway, of creating some sacred space. Um, And a a lot of that sacred space has to do with the fact that we live in a world where we were promised a global village, and instead we have this drafty, cold suburb of information. There is no pervading sense of intimacy and connection with people. We are not alone, but we are so profoundly lonely. And so if the Sabbath can provide anything to us, it is a station where once a week we can go and not belong to a virtual community, but a real community, where people gather. And, the, and the, maybe one of the most remarkable things about the synagogue is, is if I go to the ACC to watch a Leaf game, the guy I'm sitting next to, I only know one thing about them. Well, actually, maybe two. They either paid a ridiculous amount of money for those <laughs> tickets, and they, didn't, they weren't gifted them. Yeah. But they, they obviously like, they love that hockey team. Mm. I don't know if the person has committed a heinous crime in their life, if they've uh, done any number of, of unsavory things. They could be a rabid anti-Semite, for all I know, mm. or a racist or a misogynist. I mean, who knows? But sitting next to somebody in my congregation... The one thing you generally can be assured of is that they have a love for Judaism, a love for the sense of the Jewish people, and a deep and abiding care for the homeland of the Jewish people. And these are remarkably powerful connecting things in people's lives. Okay, but I'm going to argue that. I'm going to say, on the other hand, uh, there's lots of people sitting beside people in churches and synagogues and mosques. Who could have said everything you said about the hockey person could be true? They could could have done something awful. They could be unethical. They could be racist. They could be misogynist. But they get the cover of showing up and getting bathed in someone some sense of righteousness uh, or the opportunity to be charitable about it to try to find a way out of that kind of unhappiness and, and, and negative life that they lead. So I, I wouldn't guarantee either one was in, in a collective right. more trustworthy than the other or more valued than the other. And I'd also think, I'm going to argue another thing with you, that there are people who uh, aren't, you said, uh, outside of religion, you don't see how you can do these, some of these things and, and be obligated to them. There are groups like the humanists who are quite obligated to social service and to community and to caring and, uh, and are structured in the way they do that as well. They meet, they talk, they do these things. So uh, I, I think there's different avenues in without having the religion and, and, and the arch- physical architecture of meeting that, that could be available to people. So I, um, the only thing that I would take issue with is not to say that you're right to point out the possibility of those exceptionalities in the framework that I'm providing. But I would say to you that they tend to be more exceptional than usual. And more, but also the people at the hockey game, it's more exceptional than usual that they have all those negative attributes. No, true. But, but the notion of, um, of growing within a community and getting to know people 
is something that you would gain in a church, a synagogue, or a mosque mm-hmm. that you certainly would not get at the Air Canada By having Center. to come back every week. Exactly. Build exactly. community, build relationships. And humanism, there's no question that humanism is a, uh, is a powerful and to some a very meaningful force in, uh, in motivating them uh, to do purposeful things in their life. But the overwhelming majority of people don't find that kind of passion in humanism. You know, and before humanism, there was mesmerism, existentialism. There were, you know, there were all, all kinds of isms that existed in the world before, and they came and went because they don't fundamentally address that essential human question. Which is? Which is? It is the need for something transcendent in life. A more profound meaning than just what is in front of us. Mm-hmm. All right, it's been great arguing and agreeing with you as usual. (laughs) (laughs) You come back, we'll talk about other things. It's a deal. We'll make trouble together. Thank you. My pleasure. Have a great day. I'm Ralph Ben-Murgy, and you're listening to the New Sabbath Project on CIUT 89.5 FM. If you want to get in touch with us, you can go to our website, www.newsabbathproject.com, our email, newsabbathproject at gmail.com, or you can contact me on Facebook or Twitter, at Ralph Ben-Murgy. Tanya Shevitz is the National Communications Manager and San Francisco Program Coordinator for Reboot, a Jewish think tank that aims to reinvent the cultures, traditions, and rituals of Jewish life. She joins us now to talk about a couple of her initiatives. Now, there's two different things here, so I don't want to mix them all into one bowl, so maybe we should take them one at a time. Why don't we do Sabbath Manifesto first? Okay, great. Um, well, the Sabbath Manifesto and the National Day of Unplugging are tied together. Okay. Um, we created the Sabbath Manifesto um, because of a recognition that there's like this society of people who are just completely overwhelmed and on edge from the expectation that they respond immediately to every beep, buzz, and ringing of um, you know text, emails, and phone calls from their cell phones and computers. We really decided that people needed a way to reclaim a modern day of rest. So when you use the word Sabbath, obviously for a lot of people there's religious connotations to that. Is there a religious intention to what you're doing? Absolutely. It's rooted in the idea of the Jewish Sabbath. However, while it's rooted in the idea of the Jewish Sabbath, it really is a recognition that everyone needs a day of rest. So it's not just, um, you know, rigid, like it has to be Friday night to Saturday. It could be Sunday. It could be Wednesday. It really is, the idea is really that people should take this and interpret it in a way that um, fits their own lives, in a way that they can achieve it. So, well, it would be wonderful if everyone took 24 hours to rest um, and put down their cell phones and recharge themselves. Um, we recognize that not everyone can do that and, um, and that it may be a, a process for people to get there. So we encourage people to start slow, you know, come home and put your cell phone on a shelf um, for an hour after work, or, um, you know, take a walk on Saturday without your cell phone, go to the grocery store without your cell phone, just start to make steps toward unplugging and, you know, taking a rest and focusing on what else is around you. 
And then the hope is that people will do this regularly, and maybe that is for 24 hours, and maybe it's for, you know, five hours or one hour a week. So but are you hoping that they will incrementally increase their ability to un- unplug themselves by do by not putting any kind of pressure on them that they have to come up with the whole enchilada at once? <laughs> right, absolutely. I mean, we, we do hope that people will um, increase their unplugged time, and I think that it it, it in itself almost becomes addictive, like the cell phone is addictive. You know, right now you respond to your phone. The second it beeps, you know, you're like, oh, wait a minute, there's an email. It's like it's an instinctive thing. It's um, it's uh, compulsive. And so we hope that as people start to get used to putting down their cell phones or shutting their computers, that that will become a habit, um, almost a compulsion sometimes, if, you know, they feel like, wow, I really love the feeling of being unplugged. So we do hope that people do it regularly. Well, we have, so the Sabbath Manifesto was created. That's the guiding project to the National Day of Unplugging. And the Sabbath Manifesto does encourage people to unplug regularly. Then the National Day of Unplugging is the one day a year where we try to bring attention to it nationally and internationally to really get the message out broadly. Yeah, Um, it's an awareness campaign. It's an awareness, exactly, it's an awareness campaign. And so while that day, you know, um, we encourage people to unplug, we are certainly hoping that those people try it again. Okay, but here's the thing. Uh, Here's the thing. Uh, I I just had a a rabbi on who's a a good friend. We have conversations about this all the time. And the notion that if you're not obligated to do these things, it's not sustainable. That if you can't, uh, it doesn't really matter how he feels at 4 o'clock on a Friday. (laughs) He knows that he has to start Sabbath and that it's going to go for 25 hours. And it's 25 hours not negotiable. So what you're offering is very negotiable. I can maybe leave my phone behind while I go get some milk, and maybe I'll do it on Wednesday, and maybe I'll do it on Sunday. I worry that without the sustaining feature of obligation, that this is going to be a tough road. Right. Well, the reality is that that obligation has not um, resonated with people of with many people of this generation. They just aren't doing it. So that's the reality. So this the Sabbath Manifesto actually came out of a similar kind of um, discussion. So there there's this um, rebooter. We, Reboot has an annual retreat in um, in Utah, and so there was someone on this annual retreat, Dan Rollman, who at the time was launching a startup, and he was sitting on the mountain on Friday night for Shabbat, unplugged, um, <laughs> overlooking the, you know, looking out on the sunset. He was sitting on the mountain, looking out on the sunset, and he said to the people he was sitting with, like, wow, you know, I never do this. I'm so plugged in. I'm always on. I'm, my phone is ringing. I'm, I'm, my email is beeping. I'm just constantly under um, attack with, the, um, with technology, and I want a rest like this. This is amazing. However... I don't feel connected to the Jewish tradition of Shabbat in, in, in the way it's laid out. Like, he would not follow the, all the rules of Shabbat and didn't feel like that was something that he wanted to do. He wanted to, but he did want to reclaim the idea of the day of rest, reclaim Shabbat um, for himself and reinvent it in a way that speaks to him and to people of his generation. So the reality was he wasn't going to do Shabbat as, um, it's been done for, um, you know, since yeah. ancient times. That was the reality. He wasn't going to do it. However, he likes the idea of taking a day of rest or taking some time of, of rest. And so he, with Reboot, came up with this idea to reinvent it in a way that does resonate with today's um, world in today's society. 
So in reality, unplugging for 24 hours, most people aren't going to do it. However, unplugging for 10 hours or 5 hours regularly, people may do once they realize how beneficial it is. And then maybe they will build up to 24 hours. But if you make it rigid, there are times when you can't do it. You just, you absolutely can't do it during that 24 hours. You had a blog where you wrote that unplugging is the new status update. What did you mean by that? <laughs> well, we just, we were, we were kind of playing on the Facebook thing that that is what, that's, it's basically, unplugging is basically the zeitgeist of the moment. If you, if you look around, everyone is talking about it now. And I think it's because we've reached a tipping point in our use of technology. I think people are absolutely overwhelmed. As, as I said, they're overwhelmed by this this expectation that they will always be on, always be reachable, that because you have your cell phone, you should be answering it. My own mom, who can really cannot use her cell phone very well, doesn't know how to text, still has not, after years, set up her answering machine. She, If she calls me twice and I don't answer the cell phone, she thinks something's happened to me because <laughs> she feels like, it's a cell phone. Why is she not answering? Like, she's there. She can get it. She has it with her all the time. So um, it's... It's kind of training other people as well that you, it's like this societal shift that has to happen that you won't always be reachable. That because you have a cell phone doesn't mean that you're going to pick it up and call it back immediately. Now, did you, what did you grow up with uh, uh, a Sabbath uh, tradition of your own? I did not grow up with a Sabbath tradition of my own, but um, since, you know, since working with the National Day of Unplugging and Reboot, um, I am making a real effort to um, unplug with my family, and I do observe some of the Sabbath traditions. In fact, my son is wearing a little cute little T-shirt today that um, I put on him every Friday that has a little dinosaur, and it says, "Will you will you have Shabbat with me?" <laughs> um, and um, and he and I make challah almost every Friday um, from scratch. We love to like get our hands into the dough and mm-hmm. just punch it down and everything. So I try to do that with my kids, and for me. Um, I don't always unplug for the full 24 hours, but I absolutely unplug in important times. You know, one of the things I find very interesting about this whole notion is that you, you it, this is a, it sounds to me like it's, it's fundamentally a secularized version. You don't, there's no G word. No one's going to, to talk about transcendency and God and, and the sacred space. You're, you're not using any of that language. You're, you're really We're trying not. to make this about whether you're online or not. Trying to make it about people getting back to themselves, getting back to community, getting back to family, what is important to them. And if that includes God, and if that includes services, or that includes meditation, or any sort of spiritual thing, that is fantastic. Like, it really is open to interpretation. The thing for us, like I said with Dan Rollman um, in coming up with this project, is that if you put too much of the religious aspect into it, you're missing a lot of people. Right. So, you know, in uh, Tikkun magazine, the Michael Lerner's magazine, they did one on Sabbath, and, and uh, there was an article on the Sabbath as an act of political resistance. What do you think of that notion? As an act of political resistance that the Sabbath is? Yeah, the, like you unplug, for instance, and you're no longer beholden right, to right, the, the info dump that happens every day <laughs> that you have to sort of bathe yourself in and, and all that entails with answering calls and doing all that. Right. that, that you, you're, you're, you're standing against wh- right. where, we're, where we're being uh, heard. I think, to. I mean, I, right, I absolutely think that the National Day of Unplugging is part of that resistance. I mean, it is... The wave right now, right, is this constant connected, 
are always reachable. And we're pushing up against that. And mm-hmm. it is some sort of protest. It is like, you know what, um, I'm going to do this. I don't care that everyone is trying to reach me. This is my statement that I'm going to, I'm going to unplug, you know. Um, and it's, but it is like this, it is something that hopefully from this, like these individual, this individual political statement or this individual resistance will start to change society like any political movement, right? You know, I, 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 I there, whenever there's a blackout, I always think to myself, we, we should schedule these. <laughs> you know, really, once every six weeks, and you put the power back on before the food starts to rot in the fridge. That's, that's the cutoff. Because when, I, when it happens, you, you, you look at each other, and the next thing you know, you start talking to your neighbors, and you go out onto the main streets, and everybody starts congregating. And, you know, the, the, the more technology, the more loneliness there seems to right. be. So it's an interesting thing. So uh, I'm sure you're getting all kinds of people who are sort of reveling in, in the permission to, to unplug themselves. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, during Sandy, I remember reading some things of people who said, you know, we we were forced to just play games. Like, we had nothing else we could do. We were forced to have dinner by candlelight. And that is like going back to the traditions, right? And they, despite the fact, I mean, that Sandy was so destructive, for some people, that was a wonderful experience. Like, this just forced in areas where it wasn't so bad, this forced um, togetherness, this forced um, yeah. unplugged time. It is it find is, a it neighbor. Is you experience, yeah, yeah. Find a neighbor. Right. Play kerplunk. Do whatever you have to do. Yeah. <laughs> right, and it is true. So, I mean, that's this is one of the things I say all the time with the unplugging that it is so important to be unplugged and just walk down the street because you don't notice anything when you're on your phone. I mean, people are constantly falling into holes and getting hit by cars because they have their um, phones, their noses buried in their phone. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and so when you walk down the street and you actually notice things and you say hi to your neighbor, or you notice something that changed on your block, it's incredible. I just, I find that it's so sad what's been lost in that way. That I know, but you know what, if you don't take your phone with you, like if I don't take my phone with me as I go to the corner store, my wife perceives this to be some sort of subversive act in a relationship. <laughs> well, do you not care enough about me statement. that, you know, you, you, you care so little that you don't want to make sure that if I can reach you at any moment to say you forgot to get sugar, you know, like, so we, we've actually gotten into this space this perpetual loop of connectedness and yet we're disconnected in so many ways. So I guess you guys are working on that. Yes, but absolutely. Like I think, and you know, for me, the heartbreaking thing, and this is the children, and this is why I make a really big effort to be unplugged around my kids as much as I can. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not perfect and I, you know, I get overwhelmed with work and I feel like, Oh my gosh, I got to check my email. But I, I try as much as I can to be unplugged around them because kids today, um, there was Sherry Turkle did this um, book alone together. Like you right. said, we're we're more disconnected now from each other. Um, alone together, and in there, um, I heard her speak on Terry Gross on Fresh Air, and she said that kids today think they are second to their parents' digital devices. Yeah, and that just broke my heart. And yeah. you see it, you see it everywhere. Parents are out sure. with their kids at dinner at the playground, and they're not paying any attention yeah. to them. I was at the science center here in the Toronto area, and there, there was about seven dads. And they were all just on, on their smartphones. They're all on their phones. That's the way. You yeah. know what? It's all transitional. I love what you're doing. Uh, uh, you know, it's very interesting. Give us a website so we can tell people where to go. Sure. Nationaldayofunplugging.com or sabbathmanifesto.org. Nationaldayofunplugging.com is our newer website, and we're asking people to upload photos of themselves holding a sign that says, I unplug to fill in the blank. Tanya, says, thank you very much. I really oh, appreciate my- it. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Take care.
You too. Bye-bye. Tanya Shevitz is the National Communications Manager and San Francisco Program Coordinator for Reboot, a Jewish think tank. The New Sabbath Project, here on CIUT Radio. How does the notion of unplugging or sabbatical affect the way we eat, the way we live, Wayne Roberts is a Canadian food policy analyst, activist, writer, and longtime advocate around issues of food. He joins me in the studio. Hello. Hi. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? It's I'm good. been a while since Restful. I've seen you. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to talk about start with the notion that that actually comes out of a biblical text, which was the 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 law that every seventh year the farmer had to stop and not farm that field, and uh, how that was a starting point and where we've come to now with how we perceive our, our, our food and, and, and how we grow it. Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, I mean, it seems to me it's not an accident. You got seven days and the seventh day was a rest and uh, seven years that you had uh, let the soil, and there's the magic number seven. And <laughs> yeah, and if you were the farmer things, yeah. uh, in those days, also on the seventh day of every week, you actually couldn't farm your land. You yeah. had to stop. So uh, one of the interesting struggles going on in the world today is that um, people are fighting for recognition of what is called traditional knowledge, and that is that in the global south, there's all sorts of people who have done things for thousands of years, and a scientist will go in and say, well, that's stupid. Like, you're, <laughs> the rice you got could, it is not yielding anything like what the rice is that we have. And then they substitute the new modern scientific rice, and then they find out that uh, there's a drought year and uh, everything dies and that the seed that they'd thrown away was one that could not only do fairly good yields but also was very good in periods of drought. Right. So uh, there was some knowledge there that we hadn't recognized. And so you might say the same about the, the ancient knowledge about giving nature a rest as well as uh, humans. And so I think throughout the uh, what was called the Dark Ages, um, or the Middle Ages, uh, they, it's considered that one of the things that made agriculture highly inefficient was that they allowed it to go fallow. And one of the things that preceded the rise of capitalism was that they said, actually, a change is as good as a rest, which I think may actually be true, but the rest was actually a form of change. So you crop rotation and, and in other words, effect. by letting the animals out on the field every mm -hmm. seventh year, they, they found a use for it and they added manure mm -hmm. to the soil. But I think you could flip that sentence either way. A change is as good as a rest or a rest is as good as a change. They mm -hmm. both accomplish the same purpose. So being productive allowed them to uh, a, a huge problem in the Middle Ages was they were, uh, land was very scarce and um, so it allowed them to to make use of of land instead of mm -hmm. pillaging another forest or a swamp or something like that. But ultimately, it led to a concept of agriculture, which is basically nature never needs to rest, and you can go after it all the time. And then as soon as they developed uh, uh, chemical fertilizers, they worked the soil every year. Like their potatoes are growing in PEI every year. They don't say, whoops. One is taking nitrogen. We better put a nitrogen-soaking uh, crop in next year. Or 
anything like that. So, so have we outfoxed the notion <laughs> of rest then? <laughs> no, we got trapped by, by, by not resting, I would say. You know, uh, I get this feeling when I look in the urban landscape in, you know, the northern part of the globe anyway. Uh, we are, we're trying to connect again to our food through local food movements, um, farmers markets, uh, the sense of the organic. It seems that there's a sort of a, a, a spiritual longing underneath all of this for, for community and for, for connection. Talk to me a bit about what you see with all of this kind of localization of food and, and mm-hmm. all the mm-hmm. other things. I occasionally do these sort of informal surveys, like how many people here at a food meeting um, think that we have to talk about something that's missing in terms of identity or authenticity or place uh, or spiritual meaning. And they almost everybody puts up their hand. So mm. I would say it's one of those issues that everyone agrees with, but nobody has yet articulated. Like when you think of why is the food movement around, usually someone will state something that's pretty utilitarian, like it's not healthy, you know, it causes chronic disease, right, right. Uh, too many miles have been driven, it's bad for the atmosphere, all of which are important reasons, but they, nobody says, and it's just spiritually empty, uh, and that's a big problem. <laughs> yeah. And so I suppose because of our secular um, culture, ultra-secular culture, as distinct from ecumenical culture, mm-hmm. um, uh, th- there's not really permission given for people to say, well, that's really what's what's bothering me. You know, and it's interesting, We, you know, in this program, we're talking about this notion of a Sabbath, and a key component is the sacred feast, mm-hmm. right? The, a key component is coming together around food. And I, I get the feeling that... Um, you need to be able to create that space. You, you can't just sort of hope you bump into it. I mean, you have to move from processed food to the food process. <laughs> so so I, I wonder, though, uh, with our antipathy towards, you know, anything that says the word spiritual in it, you know, mm-hmm. clearly you're irrational mm-hmm. if you're spiritual. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and yet all these people who engage themselves in food as um, in, in some ways almost a holy effort. Right? Mm-hmm. As you're as mm-hmm. you're pointing out, uh, how do we reintegrate ourselves back into that without scaring people off that they're you know this it's a bunch of voodoo now? <laughs> Give me that cheeseburger, <laughs> you maniac, <laughs> the baconator. <laughs> Which is interesting because you know I, you, when you go up to four hundred one and they you know in these fast food joints that they have on the highway. Um, one of them had uh, the Baconator in it. You know? So I asked the guy at the, at the counter, how's that selling? He says, we can't keep it on the shelf. It just flies off the shelf. You know? so it's like eating a rock and driving on. You know? so, yeah, you know, they're, they're doing it. There's nothing spiritual in it. I mean, is food spiritual or isn't it? Yeah. Well, of course, I mean, the problem is, is that um, you're fighting another metaphor of food, which is war. So the most common phrases that are used to describe uh, food come out of, out of war, hmm. especially, uh, I would say, the beginning point of uh, the food system we live in now is World War II. And, uh, you know, why is it that eating this makes you strong? It's because the original purpose of food in the 1900s was to get people prepared to go into war, right? Mm-hmm. And they weren't so much, they gave them lots of protein and, 
things to build strong bones and all that kind of stuff, but they weren't so much worried about them, whether they would be good for a, to live into a ripe old age, because, of course, they weren't going to be. They were just going to be con- cannon fodder. Right. Um, and you think of all the things that came out after World War II, pesticides, herbicides, like that's all side as in murder, as in suicide and homicide, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, the places that used to make tanks started making tractors. And so, uh, and if you look at all the uh, names of, uh, of uh, you know, herbicides, and that they're called machete and yeah, uh, all, right. all this kind of stuff. So Roundup. <laughs> <laughs> Roundup. <up. laughs> yeah, yeah. So... That's a, actually a more dominate, dominating thing, and I think Baconator sort of fits with that. Is like <laughs> <A> Terminator, <laughs> Baconator. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, so war is violent. Yeah. Food is violent. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so the sacred in food, the breaking of bread, mm-hmm. you know, that we don't hear very. It's not usually used in a marketing campaign. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I suppose because. Um, uh, you know, it's not a money-making part of the of the ceremony. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I suppose some people might have thought, well, this is part of building a tolerant society that's not doesn't have um, one religion sort of out in the open. Mm-hmm. But um, but it's also not money-making to lo- uh, have fields go fallow for a seventh year, right? No, that's a that's a problem. Not short-term you, money-making anyway. The reality is we have more food than we know what to do with, and it wouldn't do any harm to either put some land permanently into rest, I would say like all the land that is a bit fragile, like near river banks and mm-hmm. things like that, and then put other portions of land into rest uh, occasionally. Now, my wife ran an organization called Local Food Plus, which certified farmers for being sustainable. And one of the ways they got the rating that they had to do was they had to leave some land wild. Mm-hmm. So because there's simply more biodiversity there than than any fields that humans create. Just, and you see, now I can take this back to the conversation we've been having for the whole show in that a person should leave one part of themselves wild, <laughs> right? Six days of boom, ba, boom, ba, yeah, boom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there yeah. should be that other, you know, back 40 of uh-huh. your life uh-huh. where it's not really about that anymore, where mm-hmm. you're allowed to roam into those notions of, of self mm-hmm. and context in the world that, that really can move around that. Yeah. Well, you know, um, when unions originally fought for the uh, shorter workday, it was on the assumption that in order to give Sunday, um, which would be, be, this would be in uh, Christian uh, countries, to make it a day of rest and reflection, you needed to have Saturday to do the shopping and all the other things that you didn't get during the the week. So the... Uh, if you go back to 1900 or so, which is what I did my PhD uh, thesis on on labor, uh, um, that was the argument that was made for for reducing the work week to 48 hours. And, and, and having done that work, you have now forced me for years to call you doctor, which is <laughs> really annoying, I have to tell you. I'm willing to bend myself to that kind of a will. Yes. We'll give it a rest. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. All right, well, this is fascinating, and I really appreciate you coming in to talk oh, about Oh, my this. pleasure. Uh, really do- Dr. Wayne Roberts. Yeah. <laughs> uh, not one you want to get a prescription from, but <laughs> maybe for food. Do you have a new book out by any chance? Anything no, but I, I actually, I, just an interesting thing about uh, food is that um, I did write a book called The No-Nonsense Guy, which you uh, emceed my, yeah, I, I in love, 2008. The yeah. And the ni- nice thing about it, in a way, is that it's totally obsolete in four years. Hmm. So um, hmm. 
it, everything has changed so much. So we're really moving quickly. Whether uh, you know we need to take a Sabbath and think about where we're going, which is a good idea too, is mm. you know another issue. But yeah, the world is changing fast, and I got a new edition coming out in the fall. Oh, great, good. Well, I'll, I'll come to the. Uh, <laughs> you'll, sit there and watch. you'll be the host. I yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> we'll find another doctor for that. Uh, thanks for being here. <laughs> Thank Appreciate you. it. Dr. Wayne Roberts is a Canadian food policy analyst, activist, and a writer. That's the show for today. I'm Ralph Benmergi, and you've been listening to the New Sabbath Project on CIUT 89.5 FM. I want to thank the people who put these shows together, Julia Fresina, Lena Schulman, Nick Wildley, Brian Dunn, and Courtney Pasternak. Sean DeFry and Sean O'Neill took care of all the widgets and buttons and pushes and all that stuff. And of course, Ken Stower has been helping us through all the way. You can find out more about the New Sabbath Project and read our blogs at www.newsabbathproject.com. You can also write to us at newsabbathproject at gmail.com. Love to hear what you think. And if you have some show ideas or just want a guest blog for us, please feel free to get in touch. And you can reach me at Ralph Ben Murgy, Twitter and Facebook accounts. Again, that's newsabbathproject at gmail.com if you just want to say hi. Take care of each other. Bye.